in Genesis chapter 2, and we are picking up in verse 18. So uh, the Bible says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and he brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help, meat, or fitting for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now the segment of Genesis that we are currently studying began in chapter 2, verse 1, the beginning there, and it stretches all the way out until the end of chapter 4. And the name of the segment, uh, as it's given to us in the first verse of chapter 2, it says that these are the generations of the heaven and the earth in the time that they were created. And we talked last time about uh, that word when he says that these are the generations. And what it literally means in the Hebrew is that this is what happened after. And so when it says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, it's saying this is what happened after the heavens and the earth were created. And so what is given to us in this segment of scripture that we're in are the events that happened immediately after the creation that God had made. Now, when we get into chapter 5, it's going to start a new section and it's going to say these are the generations of Adam in the day that he was created, or this is what happened concerning man uh, after he was created, and it kind of takes on a different tone there as it changes gears a little bit. But for now, God is laying the foundation for us of what took place in the earliest days of world history when he first created the world. And what we've seen up until verse 18 is we've essentially seen four things that have happened. We've seen the creation. God created the world in six 24-hour periods of time. And then he rested the seventh day. We've seen also, secondly, that God has planted a garden in the east part of what he calls Eden. And he gives to us kind of a rough dimension of the size of that garden. It would be somewhere in the realm of about 350 million square miles. So the Garden of Eden was no, uh, you know, little thing there that, that Adam would be able to walk across in the period of the day, but it was a vast expanse of territory that was developed and beautified by God and then given to Adam for him to dress and to keep. And so a place prepared for him, a, a responsibility and a joy, a delight for him to be in that place, and God set him in it. 
The third thing that we're told is that in the middle of the garden, God planted two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one that would sustain Adam and the other one uh, that not so much. <laughs> and then uh, the fourth thing that happened is that God gave to him a command, one command, and that is that of all the trees in the garden, you may freely eat, but of the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree is off limits. You shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat from that tree, God said to Adam, you shall surely die. And so God gives Adam one word of instruction, one restriction in one spot of a 350 million square mile territory, uh, and that's where we left off at the end of our last study. Now, at the end of chapter two, we have the institution now of this thing that we call marriage, uh, the marriage that God gave. And so what we have here is three things. Essentially, we have the what, what is marriage, and then we have the how, that is, how do we... <laughs> Be married, stay married. That's why you're all here tonight, I know, for the second part of that. And then uh, finally, the why. Why did God create marriage uh, in the first place in the way that he did? And so the passage begins um, by telling us there in verse 18 at the very beginning, it says, And the Lord God said... And you may just pass over that as it being just kind of a, a precursor or an introduction into the substance of the passage... But I believe that probably of everything that's said in this whole segment concerning uh, marriage and really even of creation itself, this is probably the most important phrase in the entirety of the passage, where it just says simply that the Lord God said. And what that tells us is that what God says concerning marriage and the creation of it and its covenant and in its symbolism and its beauty and its representation, what it is and what it does, that these things are established by the authority of God's word, that God is the author of the institution of marriage. And what that means is that man does not, therefore, have the authority or the ability to change the definition of what it is, or to alter it in some way, or to let it kind of evolve with culture, or to be defined by the behaviors of men and women. God created it, and thus God owns it, and he's the one that tells us what it is, what it's for, and how it's done. And so it's important for us to understand that it's the Lord God who spoke these things and said these things. Now, the other reason why this is so important, where it just simply says that the Lord God said it, is because we know that the word of God is always with power. God says that my word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the, of the heart. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said that his word will not go forth and return to him without accomplishing the thing that he sent it to accomplish. And so the word of God is always with power. And what that means for you and I tonight is that if we want to understand marriage and we want to thrive and succeed in marriage, then if we heed the things that God says concerning it, and if we align ourselves in submission with what he calls it and tells us what to do in it, then we can be guaranteed that we're going to succeed in this most complicated and sometimes very difficult thing that we find ourselves uh, in in this world called marriage. 
And so the fact that these things are ordained by God give us security in their definition and they give us assurance in our success if we're willing to come in line with what God says. And so it's by his authority that these things exist. Now, notice that the whole process of God's establishment of marriage began with an observation. We're told there in that first verse that the Lord said that it is not good for a man to be alone or for the man that he made to be alone. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that God has said that something is not good. We've seen God over and over again throughout all of his creative processes pro- pro- pronounce goodness upon the things that he has made. He made, he created, and he said, it is good. He, he created, he made, he said, it is good. When it was all over, he looked at everything that he made, and he said, it is very good. And now for the first time, God takes a step back and he assesses what he sees in all of the creation, what's happening. And he sees something that causes him for the first time now to say that it is not good. And what that not good is, is he says that it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, he does not tell us specifically what it was that he saw that made him draw that conclusion. What did he see that made him say that man It is not good for him to be alone. And we don't know exactly what that is. But the passage gives us a clue at the end of verse 18 when God says that I will make a help meet for him. Now, there are some that take offense at this. Oh, is that all that the woman is? Is someone who was created to help the man? She's subservient to him in some way and she was made to be his servant or his slave. And there are some that read that and take it that way. And unfortunately, there are some that also teach it that way and speak it that way as though that's what it means. I looked up the word that God employs here when God says that I will make a help meet for him. And what I discovered is that the word in the Hebrew that God uses is the word ezer. That's probably not how it's pronounced, but that's phonetically in English how it sounds. It's E-Z-E-R. And the interesting thing about the word ezer, where it says that God says, I'll make a help that's fitting for him, is that it's only used 22 times in the entirety of the Old Testament, and it is exclusively used in the context of God giving help to man. There's another word that's translated help in Hebrew, and that's the word ezer, spelled A-Z-E-R. And that word is used 82 times throughout the Old Testament. And the context of azer is help that comes from man to man. So human help that would come on the horizontal plane. So ezer, help on the vertical. Azer, help on the horizontal. And the word that God uses when he says that I will make a help fitting for him is the word ezer. That is, that it's help that comes directly from God. Now, the other places where God uses that word, ezer, talking about his help towards man, he uses it in the context, first of all, of a shield. When God says, I will be your help, ezer, and your shield. That is that God is going to be our defender. Another way that God uses the word ezer, defining his help towards humanity, is as an advocate, someone who stands up for someone else. That's what an advocate does or a defense attorney. 
And so God says, I'm going to be your help, your advocate, your defense attorney, the one who pleads for you. Other ways in which it's used is in the context of one who brings encouragement or gives strength to. And God says, I'm going to be the one that comforts you, that encourages you, and that lifts you up. And here's my absolute favorite use of the word Ezer as it appears in the Old Testament scriptures. And it's in Hosea chapter 13, verse 9, where God says to his people Israel, he says, O Israel, you have destroyed yourself, but in me is your help. It's the word Ezer. And the only time that God uses the word Ezer, where it can even be implied in the context of help from human to human, is in this passage right here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The only time is when God said, I will make a help meet for him. In other words, what God is saying here is, I'm going to give him a godsend. I'm going to give Adam someone who will be a shield for him, someone who will be a defender and an advocate for him, someone who will encourage and be able to strengthen and lift him up in the ways that I know that he will need and in a way that I know that he will also reciprocate and give for her. And in a way where God would look at Adam and even say that without her, he'll destroy himself. And how true is it, guys? Don't we know? I talk to men all the time that say, my wife literally saved my life. In fact, Pastor Mike, I don't see him here tonight, but he said that in our staff meeting this Tuesday. He said, my wife saved my life by coming into my life. And all of us can attest to the things, at least us men, in that. And so the idea of a help that's made for him is something that God provides help from God to build up, to strengthen, to defend, to be a shield, and not to be a servant, not to be a slave. That's not the context of it at all. It's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful ideal and not something that's been perverted by men. So God sees a need that Adam has. Now, some other thoughts concerning why God said it is not good for man to be alone um, is, is first of all, just what we know concerning the effect that loneliness can have upon a human being. Now, anybody in, in here that's ever experienced true loneliness, then you know what it's like uh, and you know the effects that that can have in your life when you have that. Uh, those that study such things and that have followed the, the cases of those that have experienced true loneliness um, highlight that it can cause mental disorders, dementia, heart disease, a reduced lifespan, sleep disorders, inflammation of the body, and learning and memory disorders, just to name a couple things. You know, That loneliness can have a detrimental effect on humanity because man Human beings, man and woman, we were not made to be isolated. You know, sometimes I think because of the, the, the multiplicity of people that are constantly flowing in and out of my presence uh, on, on a second-by-second second basis, sometimes I think isolation would be a beautiful thing. <laughs> and, 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 and I recharge in isolation. You know, I thank God for those times, you know, that, that he gives but uh, while we were vacationing in the Outer Banks, we rented a Jeep and we drove all the way up on the beach. There's no roads. We drove up on the beach right up to the Virginia border. And then we found a trail that cut inland from there. And there are actually houses up in that area where there is no road. You know, and people live there year round. 
And after driving through some of those roads and seeing the houses up on stilts that are in complete isolation, completely off the grid, like in, in the most literal sense that you can imagine, I thought, you know, isolation is cool, but I'm good. <laughs> I'll take what I've got because you could feel it. There was even a sense of, of the loneliness that existed uh, in that type of circumstance. And so God could see that in man, that true loneliness, not a good thing. Another thing that we know about loneliness is that loneliness is fertile ground for temptation. Isolation is fertile ground for temptation. There's a well-said phrase, that is, that idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's workshop. And that's absolutely true, isn't it? I mean, when is it that we find ourselves tempted with the strongest waves of temptation? It's usually not when we're with other people. It's when we're isolated. It's when we're by ourselves. It's one of Satan's great tactics to divide and then conquer. And if he can separate someone from the fold and get them by themselves then he has a much easier task at accomplishing his destructive purposes in someone's life. And so what we see, we're going to see it in our study next week. How does Satan successfully bring a temptation upon Eve? She's isolated. She's apart from Adam. He's not in the scene when Satan comes to her. And so God could see that though man was yet unfallen, that there was a vulnerability even in his unfallen state that when he was alone, it was then that he would be subject to the most powerful temptations. And of course, we also know that God had a will concerning planet Earth that involved lots and lots and lots and lots of people. And it would be impossible for Adam uh, to be in line with that will and in harmony with that will if he didn't have a wife because you can't have lots and lots and lots and lots of people unless you have a male and a female in order to make those people. And so God sees these things in Adam. He makes the declaration and he says that it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a help that is fitting for him. And so the next thing that God did, and this absolutely amazes me concerning the method of God and how he brought all this to pass, is that he put Adam, secondly, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. He put Adam in a set of circumstances that would make him realize the need that he had, that he didn't even know that he had yet. We're told that the Lord God formed all of the beasts of the ground and the fowls of the air, and that he brought them unto the man to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called them, that is what they were called. And thus Adam gave names to all of the creatures that were there. Now that had to be an immense responsibility that was given to Adam there in those early days. I mean, just think about the thousands and thousands of creatures and species and subspecies and, and, and all that passed before Adam and that he would give names to based upon something, an element of what they were in some way. Now I don't think this was just some flippant thing where he was just like, okay, elephant, giraffe, kangaroo, and then he gets tired later on and he's like, fly, Nat, you know, kind of a thing. No, but, but this shows us that Adam had an incredible capacity and he had incredible intelligence and incredible creativity. And also it shows to us that God was allowing Adam to exercise the dominion that he had given to him. Remember that God had said, let man have dominion over the fish, over the fowls, over the beasts of the earth. 
And now God says, okay, you have dominion, so you have the right of naming these things. What an amazing authority. Speaking of dominion, just um, yesterday, I left here at, at the, the, the normal time in the afternoon, and uh, I went over to Peach Hill Park over in Poughkeepsie. There's some incredible trails there, and I went for a jog up through some of the hills. And so I kind of went up this one trail, and I came up over the, the top of the peak and made a left and then a right on this trail. And I love that place because... Well, honestly, because of the isolation, nobody goes there, you know, and uh, and so I'm going through and, and I'm going and I come around this one turn and, and probably 20 feet in front of me, like from from me to that pole is a bobcat. I mean, it's a, a cat that looked like a dog. I mean, it was big and it had its back to me and it was standing right in the middle of the path. And so I'm running out of breath. I come around this corner and then stop. And I see this thing, and I'm like, okay, we have a problem. <laughs> Number one, I don't want to get eaten by a cat. Number two, I want to go where you are, and I don't intend to go back uphill. <laughs> I'm going downhill now. This is not good. You know. So I looked at the thing, and it flashed in my mind that the Lord God has given you dominion over the beasts of the earth, and he has put the dread of you in all of these things. You know. So I, I squared up my shoulders, and I looked at the bobcat, you know, and I gave him one of these, and I went, Boom, boom, and scrap me. And he turned around and he looked right at me. And I thought, that was really stupid. <laughs> Why did I just do that? <laughs> I should have picked up an apple and, you know. And I'm like, now I'm in this thing, you know. So it's like, we're either having a Samson moment or I'm dying today, you know. So I gave him another one. Slap, slap. And he looked at me for another minute. And then he took off into the woods. I thought, yeah, you know, the word of God, you know. And then I thought maybe I should turn around and go the other way anyways in case he just waits in the bushes and says, oh, yeah, but I didn't. I, I finished the run. But <laughs> dominion, right? God gave Adam the authority to exercise the dominion that he had given. But in the process of this activity that God had given to Adam, an awareness comes into Adam's understanding of a need that he had that he didn't even know that he had. He sees Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, he sees Mr. and Mrs. Bobcat, Mr. and Mrs. Dog, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, but he doesn't see anywhere in all of that a Mrs. Adam. And a strange thing comes over him, an awareness of his loneliness. And he realizes it. There was no help that was fitting for him. There is no counterpart. There is nothing here that matches me. Now, I marvel at the method of God in doing things in this way. Because notice the order. God saw the need before Adam did. And then God put Adam in a set of circumstances wherein he would realize the need that he had. And that gives me great encouragement. Because oftentimes, I come to a realization of the need that I have and I think that God is completely oblivious to that need and that somehow I need to make it known to him and get his attention, hoping that he can somehow meet the need. What I realize in the scriptures and what Jesus actually said is that your father knows the things that you have need of before you even ask him. And what we realize here is that oftentimes our awareness of a need that we have is the very providence of God putting us in a circumstance to reveal to us the thing that he wants to do or that he longs to do. And so God puts Adam in that realization, in that awareness, so that Adam, in dependence upon God, will turn that need back to God and see God fulfill it. 
Everything that God does within our lives, he has in his mindset relationship. He does not want us to live independent of him. He wants us in nearness to him. And so everything that he does, he desires us to be in with him, in it with him, in communication with him, in fellowship with him, in harmony with him, being led by him, that we might see his providence in meeting the needs that we have. And thus, Adam is now aware of his needs. Well, how does God, now that he's made Adam aware of the need, how does God go ahead from there and now meet the need that he has? We're told in the following verse, in verse 21, it says that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept, and that then God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and then with that rib, God went forward and he made the woman and he brought her unto the man. We notice here that what God did is that God, in preparation for Adam, he caused a deep sleep to fall upon him, and Adam slept. Now, I like that, because what it tells me is that God's desire and design for us, once we come to realization that we have a need, is that we're to bring those needs to God, and then we're to rest in patient hope, waiting for him to meet those needs in his timing and in his best method. It says that God caused him to sleep. You say, well, how does that work in the context of my needs, be they what they are, today as I'm here right now? The New Testament scripture tells us, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, it tells us that we're to cast our care upon him because he cares for us. Paul wrote to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and onward, and he tells us, he says, be anxious for nothing, but rather in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto God. And then he says this, here's the promise, and the peace of God, which passes understanding, rest, sleep, trust, the peace of God that passes understanding will guard or keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Now, Paul doesn't say anything about the timing of God meeting those needs or fulfilling those promises. He simply says, bring them to him with prayer, supplication, and with thanksgiving, and that God then will cause his peace to fall upon us. There will be a rest within us as we put our trust and our faith in him that he's going to fulfill the promise and meet the needs that we have in the timing that he has ordained and in the way that he has ordained. I was in devotions um, one day over the past week, and um, you know I do a one-year Bible that breaks it up in, in a way that works for me that I can stick to it. And I think that's the most important part of any devotion Bible reading plan is can you stick to it? You know, and I found, found one finally, you know. And it had me in Mark chapter 7 uh, a couple of days ago. And, and in Mark chapter 7, Jesus has um, kind of an interaction with the Pharisees wherein they're criticizing him for eating with unclean hands. And most of us are probably familiar with the passage of Scripture, and they're bringing kind of their religious traditions into his uh, experience and practice, and they're criticizing what he's doing. And Jesus' response to that when they criticize him is he says that, that what, what, what defiles a man is not the things that go into the man, 
That is, you eat something with unwashed hands or something, and now you think that... Jesus said, that doesn't defile a person. He says, you're going to eat the food, it's going to go through you, and trust me, it's going to be defiled when it comes out the other side. You know, that's basically what Jesus says, you know, anyways. But he says, what really defiles a man is not what goes into the man, but rather what comes out of the man. That's what defiles a man. And then he gives him a, them a list, and he, he lists all the normal things that you would expect, adultery, fornication, uncleanness. And then he says something interesting, and it caught my attention while I was reading it. He said, evil thoughts. And I thought, well, that's kind of a broad brush. You know, that could be a lot of things. And anytime some, my, my light goes on, I think I'm going to look up those words. I want to know exactly what Jesus means when he says something. So what does the, the original language mean when it says evil thoughts? And I looked it up, and I found it interesting. This is what I found that what the word literally means is doubtful reasonings, hesitations, reservations, essentially, basically, a pessimistic attitude. And when I read that, there was an instant conviction in my life. Because in the natural, I am naturally a pessimistic person by nature. I love optimists. The world needs optimists. My wife is an optimist. I know of some optimists in the church that everything, the everything is rose-colored and the glass is full and everything is great, but that's just not the way I'm wired in the natural. And that morning as I read that, the Lord put his finger on that part of my life and he said, a pessimistic attitude is something that defiles a man. And I had to bring that before the Lord and I had to say, Lord, this describes me. I'm a pessimistic person. Forgive me and work in my life and change that part of me from being pessimistic. And one of the ways that that expresses itself in my everyday life is that oftentimes I have a need that I become aware of. And that need could be anything. We all have needs. And my immediate thought concerning that need is that I'm going to die with that need. That God isn't going to meet it. That I've offended him that I have no business or right to come and call upon him and ask him to, to meet that need or to help me in that need. And what I realize is that is a completely wrong attitude and viewpoint concerning the need that I have. The reality of the situation is that oftentimes when God brings a need to our attention, it's because he wants to meet that need, but he wants to meet it in relationship with himself, not independent of himself. And so he's drawing me close to him through the need that I have. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 29, he spoke these words. He said, and seek not what you will eat or what you will drink, neither be ye of a doubtful mind. For all those things do the nations of the world seek after, and your father knows that you have need of these things. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. And so the Lord tells us not to be of a doubtful mind, but with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, to make our requests known to God, and then let his peace rest upon us while we wait for him to work behind the scenes to bring the need to pass. Now, notice that it says in the passage also that God caused a deep sleep, a peace, to fall upon Adam, if you would. And it says, and he slept. It worked. Which means that Adam found himself in a position where he was completely at rest 
concerning the process, the timing, and the outcome of what God was doing in that season of his life. He was completely anesthetized to all of it, and he had no clue what God was doing behind the scenes. He was oblivious to it. Someone could have come to Adam in that time and said, well, Adam, how is God working to meet your need? I don't know. I'm asleep. You know, I can't even tell you. Well, have you seen the, the, the wheels turning? Have you seen anything happen? Nope, nothing, not at all. Well, then how do you know something is happening? I don't. And he didn't, and he wouldn't. And oftentimes, as it concerns us, we have absolutely no idea what God is doing behind the scenes to prepare the answer for the things that we're praying for. But here's what we need to know. He absolutely is working behind the scenes, and he's bringing those things to pass. And he's doing that with Adam. Adam's responsibility Lay it before God and rest. And that's our place, to put our absolute trust in Him and allow Him to determine the timing, the way, the method, and the outcome of what it looks like in the end. And thus we see God working behind the scenes to bring all of this to pass. We're then told in this whole thing how God does what He does. We're told that He took a rib from Adam. The word that is used there in the Hebrew for rib is the word tsela, T-S-E-L-A in the Hebrew. And what it literally means is the side. It doesn't mean the rib bone necessarily, that God took one of his ribs uh, and, and, you know, okay, now you got, you're missing one. You know? No, but rather, he took something from the side. And, and what that does is it changes the context from the bone, the actual thing or item, to the part of the body from which the woman was formed. And that is that she was not taken from his foot, she was not taken from his head, but in a symbolic gesture, she was taken from his side. She's not to be dominated and stepped on. She's not to rule over and be the head, taken from the head, but rather she's to be his counterpart, side by side, walking with him, heirs together, like Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 3, heirs together of the grace of life. And so God took a chunk out of Adam's side, literally, and then he closed up the flesh in its place, and then of that substance, he built, literally, when it says that he made, he built the woman. And I'm so thankful that God built the woman because he knew what he was doing. He knew how to build her, you know. So God builds this woman, and then it says that she is brought to the man. So follow the flow in verse 22. It says that the rib which the Lord took from the man, he made a woman and then he brought her to the man. So she was of the man and then she was brought to the man. Sometimes uh, we get the question, us Christians, when we're out in the world at our workplaces or wherever, people say, where did Cain get his wife? And they think they got us, you know, like, oh, oh, oh. where did Cain, oh, I don't know, there was Abel and Cain, and he took a wife, where did she come from, there was only, and we get this whole thing, you know, and then we say, yeah, you know, you're you're forgetting, they lived for a thousand years, there was cousins and nieces and and, and sisters, and there there was a lot of people in a very short amount of time, and there was no law of Moses, nor cultural stigma, nor forebodance, nor corruption in the gene pool that would make marrying a relative an odd, strange, or destructive thing. And so it's a very sensible answer. But really, they're asking the wrong question. If they really want to get us, they should say, where did Adam get his wife? Because what's even stranger than a man marrying his niece or his cousin or his sister is the man who married himself. 
<laughs> I know a lot of people want to do that. You know, I just want to be married to myself and leave me alone, you know. But Adam was the first and the last man that got to marry himself <laughs> in the literal sense. She was taken of the man, but she was then given to the man and separated from him. Adam's reply to it in verse 23 is that he says when he now sees her, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And notice this, because she was taken out of the man. Now notice there that it says that she is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Notice that there's no mention there of the blood. And I think that that's a significant omission on a part of God, Adam, and the Holy Spirit in it. When Jesus was raised from the dead, and he appeared to Thomas, doubting Thomas, who said, I'll only believe if I can put my finger in his hand and in the hole in his side, then I'll believe that it was really him. Talk about a pessimist, right? And Jesus appeared to Thomas, and he said, Thomas... Come over here and touch me, he said, for I am flesh and bone. He did not say flesh and blood, and that was on purpose. Because he was no longer flesh and blood. He was flesh and bone. He was then physical in the physical sense, but he was spirit drive. He was no longer animated by the blood. Now, why is that significant with Jesus and also with Adam? Because Leviticus chapter 17 says that the life of man is in the blood. That's why we're not to eat blood. We're to drain it out or cook it out. We're to respect blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood according to God. And that's why the blood of the animal was so precious and the blood of Christ was so necessary. His life was spilled out for us. The life is in the blood. But notice that it's, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, but not blood of my blood. Why is that omitted? Why is that important? Because when two become one in a covenant of marriage... They become one flesh, but they remain individual lives. A man and a woman, they don't lose their individual identity. Man, you remain who you are, your personality, what drives you, your gifts, what animates your life, what God created you for. That remains a part of you. It doesn't just disappear and dissolve. Same thing with the woman. I know many men in a wrong view of marriage, that they'll look at the woman and they'll simply say, well, you have no existence or identity of your own now. You belong to me. And they look at their wives as though they're some possession of theirs, and they completely dismiss their personality, their gifts, the graces, the beauty that makes them what they are. No, 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 that's not the idea behind marriage. When the two become one, what's happening is that the graces that I bring and the graces that she bring are compounded and her value is added to my life, and my value is added to her life, and the two, though they be yet individuals, are joined as one in the Lord. I become a beneficiary of all of my wife's strengths. And thus, her development and growth and beautification is to my advantage, and vice versa. And thus, I'm not encouraged to squelch and quench and dominate her and make her nothing, but rather to build her up and to bless and to beautify because that's to my advantage. She's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, but she is woman. She's been taken out of man. She is her own. Now, notice here in the text, it's the last phrase of verse 23. It says, she shall be called woman. Notice this, it's important, because she was taken out of man. She was taken out of man. 
Why is that important? Because God did not, in this act, create the woman. The woman was already created on the sixth day of creation. When you look back in Genesis chapter 1 and you read what happened on the sixth day, it says that God made man in his image, male and female created he them. Female was created on day six. But she's not separated from the man until now at this point. What does that mean? It means that when God built or formed or fashioned the woman... He took more than just hardware out of Adam in order to do it. By hardware, I mean the rib, the physical side, physical substance that he used. He took something invisible out of Adam as well. He took the female nature. He took the female role. He took what the female is. He took that out of Adam and he made something separate. Keep a finger in your place right here in Genesis chapter 2 and really quickly just turn over to Genesis chapter 5. It's just one or two pages over to the right. I want to show you this. Notice what God says here. And if you don't have a King James Bible, look at it on the screen. He says this. He says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man... In the likeness of God made he him. Follow it. God made man, and he made man in his image. Now watch this, verse 2. Male and female created he them. Now do you see the plural there? Now one has become two. Male and female created he them, and he blessed them, and watch this, and he called their name You see that that's singular? It's not plural. He's gone from singular to plural, back to singular. He called their name Adam in the day when they, now you're back to plural, were created. You say, what in the world? Does God need to take an English class? Did he not know what he was doing when he wrote this down? Doesn't he need to understand the difference between singulars and plurals? No, 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 no. This is specific. This is the way God made it. He made man in his image, the combination of the male and the female nature in one, complete. Then he separated the female part of what makes man in God's image what he is. And then he put the two back together in a relationship called marriage, and he called their name singular Adam. What does it mean? It means, listen, it means that the true expression of man made in the image of God is the male and the female joined together in the covenant of marriage. That is man made in God's image. When you take the male and the female and join them together in the covenant of marriage, that is the witness of the true image of God. And by the way, subnote, asterisks, parentheses, you know, that is why, huge note here, That's why homosexuality is an abomination to God. That's why. Do you understand? There's a why. People say, well, God is a bigot. God's against my sexual preference. God is... No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with preference. It has everything to do with representation. God is holy, and man is made in the image of God. And anything that desecrates or pollutes the image of God is an abomination. 
And when you combine the male and the male or the female and the female, you have ruined the picture that God wanted as a witness of himself in the world. And thus God calls it an abomination. That's why, because it desecrates who he is, his very person. God in his fullness. Now, I am not preaching some weird thing that Jesus was sexless and he was both male and female. No, 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 no. That's not the idea behind it at all. But that it's the two things. Do we, do we agree that men and women are different? Amen. Right? We understand that, right? That <laughs> we think different. We're wired different. You know, everything about us, there's like a difference. And that's on purpose. It's because something was taken out and given, and then the two things come back together. But then we look at Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we see that he was, as the Bible calls him, the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15. He was the perfect combination of both the toughness and strength, the firmness, stability, the leadership of what the male was designed by God to represent and hold as a role. But at the same time, he would take a child and set him in the midst. And he would say, what, what are you forbidding them for? Let suffer the children to come and be. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. Are you guys out of your mind? And he would take time for children out of his day. He would sit on a donkey with his robes draping over the two sides. And he would weep and say, how many times? Jerusalem, would I have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks? But you would not. And I can just see his disciples going, Jesus, no. The scourge, the cat of nine tails, turn over the tables. Why are you weeping? This is not... This is not characteristic of your strength. But it was. It's who he was. Do you understand? Man made in the image of God is the male and the female joined together in the covenant of marriage. That's the image of God in the world. But what's the result of that? Because even in marriage, there's a feeling of incompleteness, isn't there? Sometimes we think, well, once I find my spouse, once I'm linked, once I'm united, once the, the deal is sealed and things are set, then I'll be complete. Things will be right the way they're supposed to be. And we're excited and we walk the aisle, we make our covenant, we get married, we experience the honeymoon and the excitement. And then weeks go by and we say, well, why do I still feel empty? Why is it that even though I'm completed, yet there's still something lacking? Here's why. Because because of the complexity of what makes a human being what they are, and also because of the damage that the fall of man has created in man, even when two people come together, there's still a lot of gaping holes, isn't there? There's still a lot of incompleteness. You say, well, why does that happen? If this was the design of God for this beautiful relationship, here's why. Because God never intended that a human being could satisfy the needs of another human being. There's only one thing that can satisfy the needs of a human being, and that is God himself. He is infinite in his proportion, and we are infinite in our capacity. And something that is infinite in its capacity needs something that is infinite in its size to fill it. And thus only God can do it. Why do marriages have problems so often, if we look at it from a simplistic, broad view stance? Because oftentimes we put too much pressure on our spouses to be something that they were never designed to be. Well, you're not satisfying me. Well, you're not meeting my needs. You're not meeting my expectations and the things that I was expecting from you or what you're supposed to do. And I'm the way I am because you are the way you are. And what you have in that 
instance is you have two common pieces of thread seeking to hang the weight of the world on another piece of thread. And then we wonder why it fails and why it doesn't work. You say, well, then how in the world is it supposed to work? Well, what does God say? Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. Listen to what Solomon says concerning this whole concept of success in marriage. He says, the two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. We actually had this verse on our wedding invitations, and the printer misprinted it, and they put the word hate there, H-A-T-E. And so if two lie together, they have hate. <laughs> we still joke about that, you know. But how can one be warm alone? But listen, here's our verse. It's verse 12. He says, And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. I remember in our engagement period, we were going through, Georgia and I, the book of Ecclesiastes, and we came across this verse, and both of us said, What? What in the world is a threefold cord? And then that night after she had gone home and I was just thinking all these things through, the Lord revealed very clearly what it means. What is a threefold cord in the context of a marriage? Well, if I'm one strand, I understand that. She's another strand, I understand that. But where's the third strand? It's him. It's the Lord. See, he's the steel cord upon which the two pieces of common thread are wrapped around that holds the whole thing together. And so as he fulfills his promise to be the one that meets the needs that I have, she's set free to be who she is and to gain her satisfaction from him as well. And then the marriage works in an amazing way. Because I'm not putting pressure on her to be something that she's not designed to be, neither is she putting pressure on me to be something that I'm not designed to be. We're drawing from him, and we're growing together. It's a threefold cord, and it's not quickly broken. And it's the wisdom of God in making marriage the way that he did. It's a relationship with him first, seeking first his kingdom, and then adding all these other things and causing there the, the, to be the beautiful human-to-human -human expression of love that exists within a marriage. It's the wisdom of God. What an amazing design. Well, we've answered the what, what is marriage. Now the question is, how? How in the world do we do this whole marriage thing? So I have a list of books to recommend to you, and if you'll just get out your pen and paper, or if you want to take a picture of the screen, I have 10,000 titles that you should check out and read, and you know, lectures, YouTube videos, you know, commentaries, counselors that you can talk. No, 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 no. I love God because he's so incredibly simple. He knows that we're sheep, that we can handle only so much. And so he says, listen, here's how it works. Here's the application of this, verse 24. He says, therefore, connective junction, connects what he said with what comes next. Here's the instruction. Here's how it works. Shall a man, and it goes for a woman too, leave his or her father and his mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And then they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. He shall leave his father and his mother. Now, in the context of that culture in that day, that was everything. You lived under your parents' guidance. You were under their authority. You were under their provision. 
You were under their counsel. You were under their opinion. You were, that was your whole life in those days, whether you were a male or a female. And what he's saying is that you leave all of that behind when you make a promise to another person to enter into matrimony or marriage with them. In other words, every other part of your life that was lived prior to that covenant becomes old, obsolete, and it passes away. And that now, moving forward, the only thing that exists is your relationship between you and your spouse. So many marriage problems arise because people are holding on to things in the past that they are called to part with. Leave the things that are past. Old friendships, old flames, old memories. Even the counsel and directive and will of parents that can be strong and opinionated. All of that must go. And the relationship must take center stage in your will and in your decision-making from here on out. You're to leave the father and mother. The second stage, second thing he says, is that you're to cleave unto your wife or unto your spouse. What does it mean to cleave? To cleave simply means that two things become joined together and they are now inseparable. There is no longer any air gap that exists between the two entities, but they are completely one in every way. Physically, spiritually, and solically, or emotionally, or in the mind. Is that that relationship is to have nothing that comes between it. It is to be so sanctified and so holy, so set apart, that nothing can get in. It also means, and highlights, or implies, commitment. Is that when the two become one, the two things become inseparable. When the Pharisees were talking to Jesus about divorce, they said, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to get divorced for any reason? Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he says, well, what does the scripture say? And they quoted Moses, Deuteronomy 24. They said, well, Moses said we could get divorced. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 back up. I, I see what you're doing here, <laughs> you know, bringing it down, trying to politicize this, you know. He goes, what did God say? Jesus brought it into the framework of Genesis chapter 2. He said, no, 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 no. God said in the beginning he made them male and female, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Then, listen, here's what Jesus does. He applies it. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Which means that Jesus' commentary on this verse is that part of what it means to cleave is that divorce is not in the vocabulary of the married couple. It doesn't exist. God has joined it together. You've come before God and you've made a covenant of the two becoming one. And therefore, there can be no separating of it because God has done it and he doesn't change his mind. He's the Lord, he does not change. Now, of course, we understand that in the case of fornication, uncleanness, adultery, we understand that, that there is a place for it. There is allowance for it because of abuse in those types of things. But apart from that, part of the recipe that makes a marriage work is the mindset that this thing is till death do us part. There's no option. There's no out. There's no we don't like it. There's no we'll try this a different way. We'll go our separate ways. We'll do that. It doesn't exist. If there's an out... Guess what man is prone to do? Take it, right? Give me the easy road. Path of least resistance. I'm for it. Let's do it. But no, 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 it doesn't exist. When it doesn't exist, your option becomes make it work. And it's in the make it work that the marriage begins to develop. 
The Bible calls us living stones. You know what stones do? They rub together. They grind on each other. But in the outcome, they fit together perfectly. And that's God's design. So you'll leave, you'll cleave, the two become one, and then finally it says that they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, this is not just simply giving us a fact of the appearance of Adam and Eve and the fact that they weren't wearing clothes. Yes, that that is true. They were literally naked. But nakedness in biblical context speaks of something more than just the physical reality of clotheslessness. Nakedness in the Bible speaks of vulnerability. It speaks of transparency. It speaks of knowing intimately, knowing someone intimately. When the Bible says in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 that all things are naked and open before the eyes of God in our lives, it means that he can see right through us and he knows us to the very depths of what we are. And this is probably the most beautiful thing and highest ideal that God had in mind when he created marriage in the first place, that there would be nakedness between a man and his wife. Not in the physical sense. It goes without saying. But in the spiritual sense, in the emotional sense, that there would be absolute vulnerability, that there would be absolute transparency, that there would be no covering or need to hide behind whatever, so that the reality of who I am, of what I am, and the way I think would appear to my spouse. What we're called to do in marriage and what makes marriage work is the fostering of transparency. That is, that I am to enable my wife in every way that I can to be as naked as she can. Now, if there were kindergartners here, you'd go, you know, and the, but, but you understand what I'm talking about. That she can be transparent, that she's free to be who she is, that she doesn't feel like she has to clothe it and hide it from me because I'm going to mock her in some way. Or because I'm going to put my finger on that part of her, her, her nakedness and, and point it out like Noah's son Ham did when his father was naked and uncovered in the tent and expose it in some way and, and, and ridicule it or criticize it. Something that probably about her personality that maybe she doesn't even like herself, but I'm going to exploit it. And, 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 and what that does, it makes her put clothes on. I'm never, ever, ever going to expose that part of who I am to you ever again because it hurts too much. I can't risk that. I can't risk. You're the one person that I'm supposed to trust, that I'm supposed to be able to be naked in front of, that's supposed to be able to know these things. And how can I ever? And when a husband and a wife exploit the vulnerabilities of each the other, it does the exact contrary of what God intended marriage to be in the first place. That being said, I don't think there has ever been nakedness in the human realm like there was in the day of Adam and Eve, since Adam and Eve. This was probably the most beautiful marriage and marital expression there ever was. Because I don't think since that time it's ever been truly possible for a man and his wife to be completely vulnerable with one another in every way that they can. But can I give you a hint? You want to make marriage work? You want marriage to be a blessing? Foster nakedness. Foster vulnerability. Foster loving acceptance for who a person is. You say, well, how in the world do we do that? It starts with you. 
It starts with you looking at the things about yourself that you don't want to expose, that are exploitable or a shame to you, and exposing those things to God yourself. Because I can tell you this, if you're hiding something from your spouse, there's something about you that you don't want your spouse, I guarantee you, you haven't let God into that area of your life either. So it starts by letting God into that area of your life and dealing with it before him. And letting him either say, you need to accept that this is the way that I made you and this is just something about you. Or allow him to begin to change that part of your life so that you can deal with it yourself. Too many people want to begin work on their spouse right away. Well, I know exactly what needs to happen here. No, 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 it starts with me. It starts with me before the Lord saying, God, all things are naked and open before your eyes. Lord, search me. Lord, expose every part of me. And Lord, do what you're going to do in her and let me be with you and then let us grow together in this place. Leave, cleave, nakedness, simplicity. We're out of time. We didn't get to talk about why, which is the best part. Why didn't God just make two? Why didn't he just make male and female at the beginning? Why did he do it this way? Oh, our calculated wise God. We'll get into it next week. Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God. Thank you for your ways. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your order. Thank you for your power. We come to you tonight, Lord, many of us here, married, seeking to have greater marriages or repaired marriages or healed marriages. Some of us here, single, desiring to be completed and waiting upon you. Others of us here, needs that vary are different. But Father, we know that you are the one place where all of those things are laid down, where peace that passes understanding is given and where solution is found. And so we lay down our lives before you tonight. And we ask you, Father, that you would hear us in the things that we have need of and that you would help. Oh, Lord, hear us. Oh, Lord, we need you. One last thought. My son got into this um, Rubik's Cube thing, and he has now got it down. And there's some other um, you know, young guys in the church that are doing it too. He can solve a Rubik's Cube in under two minutes, no matter what you do to it. So he's like, you mess it up for 10 minutes, two minutes, he can have the Rubik's. And, and, you know, it's like algorithms and this whole thing, you know. And here's what I just want to share with you by way of encouragement as we close our study tonight. So you might be here tonight, and, 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 and your marriage could be, you know, a little bit messed up. Your marriage could be a total mess. Like, it's just, it's a mess. It's just pieces of marriage on the ground, you know. It's so bad, you know. With God... Okay, it's just a Rubik's Cube. And it doesn't matter how messed up it is. It doesn't matter if it's a little messed up or it's a lot messed up. He can fix it. He can put it back together again, and he can put everything in just the way that it's supposed to be. And here's the amazing thing, is that even if it's just a little messed up, he's going to do it the same way that he would if it's a lot messed up. And he tells us here, very simple, leave, cleave, foster nakedness. Submit to the word of God. And he is able, you say, well, that's simplistic. No, 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 this is God's word. 
This is what he says. If we do what God says, we get to experience the outcome that God lays. Amen? Let's stand.